Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 298 on a Tuesday, the 14th of January 2020. Hello, I'm Alan, and Andrew's dead this week, so I'll be talking about uh, the fall of the god of cars, which is a surprise, I'm sure, uh, a genuinely surprising legal outcome in China, and wishing happy birthday to a little friend of mine. So let's get started with some follow-up and the follow-up is all Nissan and Renault related as always. Uh, last Wednesday, Carlos Ghosn held a held a press conference which could uh, best be described as really quite long. It was two hours and 24 minutes. Supposedly you could have ridden the entire length of the Northern Line and back uh, between High Barnet and Morden. There you go. There's your useless. That actually, to me, was the best fun fact uh, that came out of his press conference. But he uh, talked for a whole chunk of that time, uh, and he he refused to talk about the Great Escape. Uh, and he instead, what he talked about was uh, was his time uh, incarcerated in Japan. Uh, how. Uh, how upset he was by the six by the six individuals he named, uh, current Nissan in, uh, executives, and their unscrupulous and vindictive uh, they were, and the the plot to um, to overthrow him and how that happened, uh, and uh, some of his reasons for for fleeing uh, Japan uh, and going to Lebanon. Uh, after a while, there was a, a short break, and then there was. Then there were questions from the audience, and they varied an awful lot. Um, some were in Arabic, uh, some were in French, some were in English. So it was a blooming hard thing to watch, actually, uh, after a while. And thanks to France Twenty Four, uh, that was was the France Twenty Four English, is whose uh, whose coverage I I watched on. Um, but yeah, he's um, he is absolutely and totally adamant of his. Uh, of his innocence and the way through the in the way through the first part of the of the press conference he showed slides uh, with with parts of documents uh, all highlighted he does he and his lawyers uh, in in Lebanon don't have all of the uh, don't have all of the 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 documentation there it's some of it's still in Japan but there are an awful lot of scans and an awful lot of an awful lot of highlighted parts uh, showing uh, just where uh, just you know people's signatures for example and and what was you know the paragraph before the signature uh, and him actually talking through the the use of the use of the CEO fund and the the sort of budget change uh, procedure uh, and process in within uh, within the alliance uh, and within Nissan gave me a little bit of a smirk there because uh, because that's the kind of stuff that I end up talking about uh, in my day job and it's 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 quite nice whenever you hear someone actually talk through something like that but that's just a that's just a sign that I need to stay in more really um there was a big there's a couple of stories uh, that we've linked to uh, there's a good autocar one uh, there's also another one which very much more on the, the sort of slightly more human uh, side by Theo Leggett on BBC News website uh, the links to both of these in the show notes obviously uh, after the press conference well actually towards the end of the press conference there was a there was a press release came out from Renault uh, it just hit the inboxes and it must have been must have, must have been scheduled before all of this but it was something completely mundane but you could uh, you could uh, 
you could pretty much hear uh, everybody who's on the on the news press list uh, jumping for their uh, jumping for their their computers when they saw a, a Renault press release partway through all of that. Uh, however, there are a couple of conflicting stories towards the end of the week. Uh, supposedly, uh, supposedly, according to Peter Campbell in the Financial Times. Now that story's behind the paywall. Uh, I'll put the link to Peter's tweet of the front page of uh, Monday the 13th of January's uh, Financial Times uh, talking about tension in the alliance and there's an awful lot of contingency planning going on uh, within Nissan about uh, I don't know if it should or if they decide to uh, try and try and to divorce from Renault uh, I think uh, it's it's a tricky thing at companies working together and, and I think that the reason that the alliance worked in as much as it worked I've done some work for Nissan a couple of years before we started the podcast because uh, it was one of the things that knowing that I'd done some work for Nissan I was always a little bit uh, a little bit careful about that uh, certainly in the early years of the podcast I now feel that enough time has elapsed uh, that, that there aren't any conflicts there but the uh, I know that what I, I saw there was was that whilst uh the engineering and the sharing of technologies is is you know technologies within vehicles uh, was there and is is visible at, at the front end. Then at the back end and support, large chunks of that have been have been uh, have been streamlined. Uh, but of course, there are still some tensions about where some of those streamlined parts sit, and it's just like any big company uh, or any group of companies that have been slightly squashed together it they, they are spending their whole time trying to fly apart and the reason i talk about this now is that there's what in situations like that what you really need is someone saying jfdi just do it uh, at the top so that no matter what happens it ends up escalated to one person who says no you have to do it and that to me is, is a bit of a worry uh, at the moment with uh, with Nissan uh, and with 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 Renault uh, is that you know Thierry Bellore is there but it's it's not there isn't that strength of someone who is who has a, a, a I don't want to call it an iron grip or anything like that because it doesn't need to be an iron grip but who has that view on both sides at once uh, and who is prepared to say no you do it or you go and that's really hard, and that's really rare. Uh, so I think there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of tension coming from that, from this this essentially this this compression that was there, holding two sort of slightly opposing forces together, uh, has been released, and and I think that the, they're probably finding that that's starting to tear things further down the organisation. If they haven't found it yet. Then they will find it in the next few months. I am absolutely uh, adamant and uncertain about that. Naturally, of course, uh, Renault and Nissan are denying these reports, uh, which have hit you know hit the shares of, of both companies, and are saying just how important the alliance is. Uh, story there, good uh, good one there from Auto News Europe as well. As ever with all of these as I'll probably say three or four times this evening, the links are in the show notes. Next, some new news. Uh, and the first story is diesel particulate filters. Uh, we, I imagine most people know what a diesel particulate filter is. Uh, for the last few rounds of, of Euro whatever, um, then 
Diesel cars have had to be fitted with particulate filters. They filter out particulates, so that's no great surprise. Uh, but to stop diesel particulate filters getting clogged, they run uh, a regen cycle uh, every now and again. So they make them incredibly hot and they try and burn off those particulates that they've collected. What researchers have discovered is, of course, during these cycles, which, which don't happen all the time, uh, and how often they happen depends on how you drive and your fuel and where you drive and, and just the whole the, the length of your journey and all these kind of things. So they're very, very difficult to to, to, to predict and, and state on a, on state what the cycle is. Um, but whenever these are being burnt off, then they're saying there is a spike in the number of particulates going out. And it says particularly ultra fine particulates, which is exactly what the diesel particulate filter is doing when it's working as designed to take big particulates and make them little so they can actually pass through, you know, the little holes in the filter uh, to get out the other side. So that's not a huge surprise. Some vehicles, it's spiking to well over the the legal limit. I'm, I'm not sure what exactly that's the legal limit of, to be honest, uh, other than its official EU emissions tests. Um, so Nissan Qashqai and Vauxhall Astra, according to, to this story of motoring research, were between 32% and 115% over the legal limit during the cleaning cycle. Uh, nitrous oxide, which is the one that people have been pregnant and grumbling about, um, have remained within the legal limits. It's it's difficult, and you know, it, it, at that point, you know, it's saying here that it can last up to nine miles at a time. Uh, to, for the for this to burn off, there is a bit of a challenge with context on this, I guess, and also where that happens uh, too. Uh, so normally this happens. These are particular filters do the clearing uh, on longer journeys at higher speeds. Uh, so yes, there will be a rise in particulates, but it, it shouldn't, or it, it, there is the hope that it's not going to be. Well, there is less chance that it is going to take place in congested city um, populated area. Again, this is just one of these things where the test needs to be closer to real life. And I'm absolutely not saying this is good or anything. I'm just explaining what it is and why it shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone that this is the case. You know, I read this story and went, oh, all right then. Well, that doesn't surprise me. That's that's the point when what they're trying to do is, is basically purge itself uh, of, of pollutants. It is, by the way, one of those one of those reasons where some modern diesel cars you really should try to avoid driving them on short journeys and in uh, on short and in suburban start stop uh, too much, uh, and where an Italian tune up uh, of going out and driving um, at 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 speeds. We're safe and legal to do so, of course, uh, is good for the car and it will make it run better by, of course, increasing the, the flow through the exhaust. Uh, because, of course, there, there are less bits in the filter. The filter is less clogged. Oh, it's PSA and it's Ellesmere Port and that really makes for a good and happy story. Um, PSA is saying that the Opel and Vauxhall uh, Astra sales launch will go ahead as planned in 2021. And it will be split between two plants, one of which will be the Rüsselsheim plant in Germany. There is still some debate around where the other one is. Currently, the Astra split between Elsmere Port and Gilwice in Poland. Both plants build the five-door hatch. Elsmere Port is the only place that builds the estate. 
Estates definitely go into Rüsselheim because the vast majority of the estates are sold uh, in Germany and in that area of continental Europe. So it's really making that model that sells best uh, closest to the market. Uh, the Polish plant is going to take on the large commercial vans uh, as well. So I imagine that'll be the replacement for the Peugeot Boxer, the Citroen, is that the Jumpy? Whatever that one's called. Whatever the Citroen equivalent is, uh, and the uh, Fiat Giacato. Uh, if indeed there's still the link up with Fiat, I don't think that's. Of course there is. It's all part of. Of course there is. It's all part of PSA now, isn't it? That was silly of me. Um, but yes, they're still not going to decide where that second plant is going to be uh, until uh, post post Brexit, once things are known and you know people know if there's going to be tariffs uh, as parts go back and forth across borders, uh, and whether they know just what the setup's going to be uh, for for workers and for any of these these contexts. So production will start on time. Uh, looks like it's going to start with one factory uh, and then a second factory will be added hopefully Ellesmere Port next story is real surprise to me uh, just because I didn't expect it to happen and it's from you know one of those one of those journals that we regularly cite on the motoring podcast it's from the National Law Review uh, and it's that Jaguar Land Rover has successfully invalidated a Chinese design patent for the Landwind X7 now, this has been going on for some time, okay, uh, and it's all about the Land the Land Rover Range Rover Evoque. Okay, so the Landwind X7 is the I think I can say it's near as darn it a carbon copy uh, of of the Evoque, uh, and this has been agreed by a number of people. So the so what happened to try and summarize this because this it's not a particularly long story uh so essentially what happened is that uh land rover of course released the evoke evoke uh landwind thought this was this was a, a good looking car basically copied it under china's unfair competition law the plaintiff's product design gained a certain reputation so that's uh, that's jlr's and the defendant's product design, which is uh, Landwind, is similar to the plaintiff's. And the use of the defendant's property design may confuse or mislead the relevant public. So, uh, so they're not allowed to manufacture, display, offer for sale or sell the X7 uh, and have awarded about $217,000 in damages to, to JLR. I'm just really surprised that a Chinese court overturned a Chinese patent against an external, uh, a non-Chinese uh, manufacturer. And that really is the big news there. So this is actual, yeah, this is the application of um, of design protection in China, which is which is big news in itself. It's it's a much bigger story, really, uh, than just the Evoke and the Landwind X7. It, it sets a bit of a, a bit of a precedent there. Following on from last week's stories about Oxford and York, then Birmingham has uh, announced a new transport plan for the city, the Birmingham Transport Plan, uh, which was published on Monday, yesterday, uh, as I record. 
Uh, and the plan is to try to to stop vehicles using Birmingham City Centre as a thoroughfare. So to get from A to B isn't. Uh, and what they're going to do is is make a number of changes uh, to the way the city is laid out. Well, they're proposing a number of cha- changes. They're not actually decided that they're going to do them. Uh, but they're looking at changing the road layout, just making it hard, too hard to drive across Birmingham City Centre. Uh, not that you can't drive a car to Birmingham City Centre, but you just really shouldn't be using it as a thoroughfare. And as part of this, of course, they're proposing that they're going to make a number of changes to public transport and improve that, and look at it all as, as a whole um, holistic everything, really. Uh, so looking at the public transport, looking at the... Um, you know, what they can do about the car and the van and the lorry uh, and to see how, you know, people can get goods and people in and out uh, but without but trying to cut down on the traffic that's just, just passing through uh, whilst uh, whilst improving public transport so fewer people feel the need um, or have the need to drive uh, to and from central Birmingham. Anyone who's tried to drive to and from central Birmingham will know exactly why you want to try and avoid it, to be perfectly honest. But uh, so yeah, so I, I, that should be a relatively good idea. Uh, by the way, in uh, local neighbourhoods and default in residential streets, then they're proposing twenty mile an hour default speed limit, which doesn't sound too awful an idea. I know that certainly around me, then twenty miles an hour is the default speed limit around here. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's going to be interesting. Be good to see how that pans out. I think. Uh, more public trans, more good public transport is a good thing. Uh, we're never going to try and argue against that on the motoring podcast. One other is that with all this discussion of uh, of of cities and emission zones and and, and traffic banning, uh, it's worth mentioning that on the we've still got just under two years until Glasgow implements the low emission zone, uh, and they've made some announcements. Oh, sorry. It implements the second phase of its low emission zone, uh, and they've made some announcements about that and about uh, the size and the shape and what uh, and what's going to be compliant and what isn't. So, uh, if anybody's interested in knowing, the low emission zone is really not that large in Glasgow. It is bounded by the M8 to the north and to the west. Uh, by the High Street and Salt Market to the east, uh, and by the River Clyde to the south. So it very, it really is very central Glasgow. Uh, phase one, by the way, has been about buses and public transport vehicles, which is great because there were some real old coal-powered smokers uh, passing through central Glasgow. And, and one of the good parts about this is that the Buchanan bus station is actually covered by the low emission zone, which is which is great. Uh, the standards, by the way, are going to be for Euro 4 for petrol, which is after January 2005, and Euro 6 for diesel, which is from September 2014. So, uh, so yeah, those are going to be... Those seem... Because we're old, those seem very recent dates, but that's still going to be a 7 or 8-year-old diesel car that would still be allowed into that low-emission zone. So, there's, you know, this isn't a, a crazy cut-off... There will be loads of affordable vehicles uh, in there, and it's not a large area. And Glasgow does have really quite good public transport in the centre, so uh, many variables there which should help make that make that work. 
Every single one of these, by the way, sounds far more reasonable than Oxford. Although, I do have some follow-up and I've forgotten to include it. Thank you so much uh, for the information uh, that I got sent by about the uh, about the, the charging in, in Oxford. And pointing out that really it was only a couple of streets and that you'd have to be a bit of a nutter to take your car in there anyway. Computers next and the DVLA. The DVLA can't recognise 2020 in some of its systems. And bizarrely, this is the Millennium Bug coming to bite us. Uh, a blip in the printers at the DVLA. So only the printers caused the date printed on many documents issued at the start of, at the very start of the year to to come out as as being from 1920. I thought that this was part of a, a sort of sticky plaster approach that was taken uh, to make sure the Millennium Bug didn't didn't cause the whole world to grind to a halt, uh, and that chunks of twenty years um, were sort of grouped together and said, "Well, it'll be fine." From if it's if it's between the year two thousand and the year twenty nineteen, then just change it at the front and pretend it's tw- it's two thousand, and uh, you know instead of it being uh, nineteen hundred to nineteen nineteen twenty. Uh, or 1919 make it from from 2000 until 2019 and of course that was all done 21 22 years ago and the people who did that will have retired or moved on and no probably hadn't documented it because that's the way it systems are and uh yeah so it got missed um when it ticked over so hopefully some more this is going to happen in a couple of places uh, another example which we didn't cover the other week although we it made it to the shortlist uh was that new york city's parking meters stopped accepting card payments for similar reasons uh, and some various other systems um had a hissy fit about that uh, supposedly we're safe we're all right until the year 2038 uh, that's the next big problem um because caused by starting unix time on the 1st of january 1970 at 0000 utc and then to store the counter as a 32-bit integer um the challenge is that that 32-bit integer runs out in the early hours of the 19th of january 2038 so uh 2038 is going to be the next the next biggie um but that's far more about it and far less about motoring so let's move on to Toyota. Toyota, of course, finally launched a new Supra last year, and now they're relaunching parts for the for a couple of the classic Supra models. So that's the A70, that's the Mark III, uh, which is the sort of wedge-shaped one, uh, and the A80, which is previous generation Mark IV, uh, which is the Fast and Furious-shaped one. Um, they're going to be selling them right around the world. Uh, domestically, America, Europe, certainly, uh, and they'll be available through your uh, through your dealer. Um, parts will be going; different parts will be being released. Will be going into production throughout 2020, uh, and they'll probably start to be delivered uh, be towards the end of the year uh, and into next. They're going to start off with door handles, prop shafts, fuel sender gauges, weather strips, uh, and all of the the emblems for the A70. Uh, headlamps and brake boosters for the A80 as well, because those uh, Toyota headlamps are well known for going all yellow, uh, all yellow over time, and and for for becoming all fuzzy. So uh, that makes a lot of sense because those are the kind of visible things that that really make a huge difference. Uh, you can request parts, or well, they will be able to to request parts. Uh, 
but let's let's see what happens there. Um, Toyota Gazoo Racing website uh, is the place to go um, to actually tell them about the, the spare parts you need. I'm sure there's no link in this uh, motoring research story, but uh, but I'm sure a, a web search will will help with that. And if in doubt, then get in touch with uh, your local Toyota dealership uh, or obviously Toyota UK if you still can't. I've just sounded like an advert. I'm sorry about that. I'm sure the people at Toyota won't be too fussed. And that brings us to Guilt Minute, which at the moment means another reminder to those of you who haven't done so to complete our listener survey. You can do that via motoringpodcast.com and click the button on the right-hand side of the homepage. If you're one of the many folk who've already completed it, then thank you so very much indeed. The survey's important. Uh, not only so you can give us feedback and tell us what you think we can improve and what you really, really like and what you'd like us to do more of, uh, but also because it gives us a little bit of demographic information that we can um, we can leverage uh, with some of the car manufacturers to help us bring you more and better content. Uh, for those of you who wish to contribute financially, give a little every month to help cover our expenses, uh, then the Become a Beige Patron button right there on motoringpodcast.com uh, is on the right-hand side of the page as well. Lastly, we have sweet merch in the Motoring Podcast shop, and upper-tier patrons get a substantial discount on that. There will be more merch coming when I have time to get the ideas from my head and into a pixel format. Uh, I've got a couple of ideas for t-shirt and more t-shirt and mug designs, uh, but I won't rush them out too quickly so that you've got time to, you know, chip, break, abuse uh, your your current your current sweet merch. Formula E is back after that sort of slightly long stint uh, since, well, it feels like a long stint, since uh, since Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it's in Santiago in Chile uh, this coming weekend. Uh, you'll remember that we talked about Chile and Motorsport last week when WRC decided that they, they, weren't, going to, uh, they weren't going to run their rally there uh, this year. Uh, a couple of changes have been made to the Park O'Higgins circuit, and there must be a great story behind that, so it's, it's probably worth worth looking up at some point, I think. Um, but what they've done is they've taken out uh, some of the sharper chicanes. It's something that Formula E is going to be trying to do now to, to lessen the number of crashes during the races, is to try and remove some of the, the, the tight, tight chicanes. Uh, just to to clear up the racing, stop it being so stop start, and and just stop it being quite such a dodgems, uh, really. So it's eleven corners to the track, uh, and three fewer than than last year uh, as a result of removing that that chicane. Uh, there's a story all about that from eRacing three six five, linkable in the show notes, and also a link to the uh, Formula E website uh, with all the times and where you can watch all the coverage. Uh, from from Santiago. From Formula E to WRC, of course, and Hyundai uh, has released that it's going that it's going to be fielding a four-car team uh, of I-20Ns uh, in, in this year's championship. Uh, they'll be starting out, of course, on January 23rd to 26th at the Rally Monte Carlo. Um, and, yeah, they're that Hyundai are taking this seriously, okay? Hyundai don't really do stuff for the amusement factor. Uh, they do it to win it. Uh, so they're making a big show uh, about the fact that they'll be aiming for both the 
both the driver and the manufacturers championships this year of course they've now got um Ottanak uh, from formerly of, of Toyota there and the current defending defending uh, world champion. Anyway, motorspoke sport corner over. Uh, let's shift in, uh, sit back, relax, and have a lunchtime read. And this week's lunchtime read comes from uh, Classic Fixers, which is part of the Gridscape Cars. It's one that's close to Graham Eason's heart because it's a story all about his uh, the the um, Restoration, fixing, shining, bringing back to, to full glory uh, his own Alpha Sud. It's been sitting in the corner of the sh- in the corner of the the unit for a little while, looking rather sad and dust covered. Uh, but now it's back. So it's a 1982 Alpha Alpha Sud. So there's a bit of a read, and there's a bit of a video too. And yeah, it's it's not a bad way to spend ten minutes having we read through that. So uh, so yeah, recommend. I recommend that. They've got other other projects and other bits and pieces that they've been covering in there as well. So that's a lunchtime read. Then naturally the next uh, item should be a list of the week. And of course, I have no editorial oversight this week, which is brilliant. Um, and it's also really good because the day that I'm recording this, Tuesday the 14th of January, marks 21 years of the Toyota Yaris. So we've got a list of 21 highlights from 21 years at the top. Now, of course, it would be that kind of title because it is a straight-up Toyota blog, okay? So, you know, it's good. It's reminded me of a whole bunch of things, like the the Yaris came from the Funtime concept, uh, other stuff that I already... Well, a part of that name carried on, by the way, because the Yaris Verso, which was the kind of weird-looking one in the Mark I, uh, was actually called the Fun Cargo, uh, in in Japan, uh, much like the Yaris was and still is called the Vitz in Japan, um, and the Fun Cargo was, was a really cool thing. And uh, I don't know, they're they're about to bring back the a small van, one of those P- uh, one of the uh, developed with PSA vans uh, is about to be released by by Toyota as well. And it's it's a real shame they didn't think to bring back Fun Cargo for that. I think it's it's the City Cargo or something dull, but Fun Cargo is a much cooler name. Um, but the Yaris was the the first properly European Toyota. I know that sounds silly because whenever you think of Toyota, it is the most Japanese of the Japanese car companies. Um, but it's a car that was uh, designed in uh, uh, designed at Sofia Antipolis at the design at Toyota's design center just outside Cannes, um, designed by a Greek and designed really for the European market, which is one of the reasons this is such a massive step change over the Starlet that came before. You know, we all think of the. You know, nowadays we think of some some JDM turbocharged Glanza wonderfulness, uh, but we forget that really the, the 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 Starlet was a pretty dowdy and dull little car, and then all of a sudden along came the along came the Yaris with its all its cubby holes and its digital center dash, which I still think is awesome, um, and its uh, funky seat fabrics and its sliding rear seat and three or five door and and just lots of nice cool little things that I could bore you for hours with and I'm only at number one in the list of 21 so I'm going to move on oh no I hit number two as well just there just really neat and tiny um yeah it just it's quite a good list actually it reminded me of stuff like the Yaris Cabrio concept which I'd completely forgotten sort of previewed the both the facelift that was to come with those teardrop headlamps uh, and also the T-Sport and some of the others um yeah, 
do have a look through because people forget about that and, and I don't know I, I think that as it's matured uh, and until rather recently with certain models that I may or may not have driven quite a lot um, people kind of forgot about the Yaris and it became a bit sort of old person car um, which is something I hate to say absolutely but I think that there's um, yeah GRMN GT4 Whoa, hang on a tick. It's Alan from about two hours in the future here. Um, I keep saying GT4 in this next little bit, and I know it should be GR4. So uh, please accept my apologies, and there's no way I'm going through correcting each and every one of them. So sorry, folks. Cheers. No, I haven't got my name down for GT4, by the way, just to make that clear whilst I'm talking about it. Partly because you can't put your name down for a GT4 yet. Okay, um, and you know, things have to be taken into consideration like price and how much I actually like what I drive at the minute and all these kind of things. So no, my name is not yet down for GT4. Yes, I'm on the mailing list. Yes, I'm following it closely. Okay, sorry, just a whole bunch of questions that I get asked there on a regular basis. Um, there's other cool stuff here. I'd completely forgotten about the chaps from Fensport, uh, Dan and Dave, uh, who a year past the summer you know, in aid of children in need, drove, drove right the way to Japan uh, in, it's actually a Vitz RS, but it's uh, in a, essentially a five-door Yaris, uh, as, you know, tiny little camper van. Now, that's an awesome and amazing thing to have managed to do. Really cool. Um, but yeah, it's a good list. Go have a little bit of a look through it. Uh, link, as ever, is in the show notes, or you can go to blog.toyota.co.uk. But if you click via the show notes, then we get the link and the click, and that's really good. For nothing thanks it also makes me feel better about the length of time it takes me to write show notes after uh, after one of these solo one of these solo shows so and finally last one and this was a cracker and it was andrew that found this one i can't take any credit for it at all but uh john lane the construction firm uh, and civil engineers are opening up their their photo archives of some of the sort of really um, significant projects they've been involved with. Uh, and they're doing that in conjunction with Historic England. Uh, but it includes an awful lot for the motorist. Uh, and that's why that's why this is interesting, certainly to me. Um, it's stuff like Seven Bridge, the M1, the M6. Um, they were the, the, you know, they were one of the main contractors behind that. Uh, behind stretches of those you know the m6 up through cumbia is still a fantastic piece of road i know it's way busier um than it, than it ever used to be but it's still a wonderful piece of road passing through wonderful scenery uh and is is a delight to to drive on uh, there's other non-motoring stuff here uh coventry cathedral for example the um the barbican the islamic cultural center the london, london central mosque uh in regent's park uh, all in there and just some fantastic photos uh, that should be really really interesting sort of from a sort of uk construction angle that should be about as interesting as as you know some of those path newsreels uh, which are on youtube which uh, are a, they're a good way to waste some time if you're ever looking for it but no that's a brilliant one so there's a link in the show notes to the bbc story bbc news story about that uh, which has a whole load of, of just sample pictures uh, and from there and it's it's great really good one no, well spotted Andrew 
Uh, that pretty much rounds it up for this week. Uh, last special edition was the uh, podcast, if you haven't listened yet. Uh, that was such a good evening, and hopefully that comes across. Um, it's a bit of sort of genuine pub noise, but that's what happens when you record in the pub, uh, I, I'm afraid. Uh, the other one to mention is that Matteo Licata uh, has released his new book, the the sort of ultimate tome on the Alpha Arna, uh, one of those vehicles that that continuously appears in the 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 worst car ever lists, uh, without many people actually understanding it in in great depth. Well, Matteo does because he's done all the research. Uh, it's available now on Amazon uh, to to buy. We should really put a, a link to that somewhere on the page uh, as well. So that's that's that for this week i'm hoping andrew will be back and alive uh next week uh if only because i'll have already spoken for six or seven hours all about podcasting during the day so i'm i'm really hoping he's still alive uh, otherwise next week's might have to be switched over onto wednesday so there's a little bit of warning about that oh if you i think it might be too late if you are interested in coming along to a workshop all about all about podcasting and all the stuff that you need to know about starting a podcast and keeping a podcast running and just not having sort of dying colleagues on it, uh, then I'll be giving that at um, Brooklyn's next Tuesday. If you get in touch with uh, Guild of Motoring Writers, um, then there might still be space. Um, I'm not I'm not sure. I know the room's big enough. I just don't know if you're all going to start to scare me the many of you who are coming uh, so we'll see anyway don't forget to now and next week you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts with the show at motoring podcast on twitter and instagram on facebook and on the contact page of motoringpodcast.com the hub of all our activities uh please don't forget about uh patron and the survey available at motoringpodcast.com and please leave a review and rating on apple podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing it really does matter uh, to get in touch with me, it's best to use Twitter, where I'm at AJP Bradley. That's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. To get in touch with Andrew, I don't believe we're quite at the stage of having to use a Ouija board yet. So I would start, I would search for Cracked Windscreen uh, on Twitter and he should pop up. Uh, we'll be back very soon. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. He's been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring.